Hebrews chapter 4. This is uh, found on page 1002 of our uh, Pew Bibles. And uh, we see that ministry of Christ above his mediation um, most clearly uh, portrayed, perhaps in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, which is an extended argument why we, uh, especially uh, Jewish Christians, no longer need the temple. How Christ has fulfilled all the types and shadows of that place. And indeed, in uh, chapter 8 and 9, it talks about how the very architecture of the temple was a metaphor of the times. That there would be a time when Christ would go through to the Holy of Holies and therefore secure our comfort and insurance by a once and for all sacrifice. And let me read uh, the whole of chapter 4. It speaks of his priesthood at the end but it's really founded on what comes uh, beforehand. This is God's holy word. Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. For good news came to us just as to them, but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. For we who have believed enter that rest. As he has said, As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Although his works were finished from the foundation of the world, for he has somewhere spoken of the seventh day in this way, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again, in this passage, he said, They shall not enter my rest. Since therefore it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly received the good news failed to enter, because of disobedience. Again, he appoints a certain day, today, saying, through David, so long afterward, in the words already quoted, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who we must give an account. So there is a warning here in this early part of chapter 4. But then for comfort, as the, the whole theme of the book of Hebrews pushes us to Christ, we see then these closing verses of particular relevance to our subject today. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word, that chapter and other parts of Hebrews, uh, the whole epistle, are quoted uh, frequently in our Belgic confession of faith. 
And I'm going to turn there now, uh, again, as I said, page 864. Uh, This topic is titled in our hymnal, The Intercession of Christ. Uh, These titles are not original to the text. They're they're modern. We might say it is the the mediation of Christ or Christ our high priest. Um, This is a a longish article, so I will read it for us this morning. We believe that we have no access to God except through the one and only mediator and intercessor, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He, therefore, was made man, uniting together the divine and human natures, so that we human beings might have access to the divine majesty. Otherwise, we would have no access. But this mediator, whom the Father has appointed between himself and us, ought not terrify us by his greatness, so that we have to look for another one according to our fancy. For neither in heaven nor among the creatures on earth is there anyone who loves us more than Jesus Christ does. Although he was in the form of God, he nevertheless emptied himself, taking the form of a man and a servant for us, that he might be made completely like his brothers. Suppose we had to find another intercessor, who would love us more than he who gave his life for us, even though we were his enemies. And suppose we had to find one who has prestige and power, who has as much of these as he who is seated at the right hand of the Father and who has all power in heaven and on earth, and who will be heard more readily than God's own dearly beloved Son. So then, sheer unbelief has led to the practice of dishonoring the saints instead of honoring them. That was something the saints never did nor asked for, but which, in keeping with their duty, as appears from their writings, they consistently refused. We should not plead here that we are unworthy, for it is not a question of offering our prayers on the basis of our own dignity, but only on the basis of the excellence and dignity of Jesus Christ, whose righteousness is ours by faith. Since the Apostle, for good reason, wants us to get rid of this foolish fear, or rather this unbelief, he says to us that Jesus Christ was made like his brothers in all things, that he might be a high priest who is merciful and faithful to purify the sins of the people. For since he suffered being tempted, he is also able to help those who are tempted. And further, to encourage us more to approach him, he says, Since we have a high priest, Jesus, the Son of God, who has entered into heaven, we maintain our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to have compassion for our weaknesses, but one who is tempted in all things, just as we are, except for sin. Let us go, then, with confidence to the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace in order to be helped. The same apostle says that we have liberty to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Let us go then in the assurance of faith. Likewise, Christ's priesthood is forever. By this, he is able to save completely those who draw near to God through him who always lives to intercede for them. What more do we need? For Christ himself declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to my Father but by me. Why should we seek another intercessor? Since it has pleased God to give us his Son as our intercessor, let us not leave him for another, or rather seek without ever finding. For when God gave him to us, he knew well that we were sinners. Therefore, in following the commandment of Christ, we call on the Heavenly Father through Jesus, our only mediator, as we are taught by the Lord's Prayer, being assured that we shall obtain all we ask of the Father in his name. Well, that's our Belgic confession. It's uh, 
It's a pretty full statement of its topic. It's basically a little sermon. And that's one of the reasons these confessions uh, were written. Uh, Many of the clergy at that time were not theologically well-read or well-informed. And this confession put in the hands of clergy a little sermon uh, to preach and teach on the intercession, the mediation of Christ uh, Jesus. But I do want us to reflect a little bit further on this and think about uh, the relevance of this text, this confession, for us today. Um, I want to open our catechism uh, with a question this morning. And I'm going to pause and give you time to answer it. One of my favorite texts in our Christmas uh, lessons and carols this evening is when the angel tells Joseph in Matthew's gospel, You will have a son, and you should call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. My question for you this morning is how? How does Jesus save sinners? How does Jesus save you who trust on him? Now, the first image that pops into my mind is the cross, right? Jesus suffering and dying for our sins. At Christmas time, we might think of the incarnation, right? He's born. He suffers uh, the life under the curse. Or you may think of Christ as the prophet, the eternal word of God revealing grace and truth, uh, the one who speaks the truth of our salvation. Our Belgic Confession, however, today Uh, focuses on something that we don't think a lot about enough. Uh, That's a complicated statement and not clear. We don't think about enough. We don't think about a lot. It's the mediation of Christ that Christ is praying for us today. Christ's intercession is his prayer. He is a mediator. He stands between man and God. We might think Uh, If you are in a conflict situation in in work or uh, maybe if you follow uh, Major League Baseball or other professional sports, sometimes contracts have clauses for mediation when a team and a player can't work out their contract, right? You bring in a a neutral third party to help uh, break down that divide. Now, when we turn to the mediation, the intercession of Christ in Article 26, uh, we are reaching the end of what the Confession teaches about uh, the objective work of Christ for us. We're going to turn in Article 27 through the rest of of the Belgian Confession, really Article 37, the last 11 articles. We're going to focus on on the application of that work to us, how we receive that work mostly through the means of grace in the church of Jesus Christ. Still Jesus' work, but in and through the church, applying it to us. But it's important to see that this intercession of Christ, this mediation in a sense, is not only chronologically last in a series of things he does for us, it continues even to this day. But it is the climax. It is the climax. And part of the reason our confession puts the mediation of Christ in this position as a climax uh, is because of its historical context. Uh, There is this issue in the 16th century and in the medieval church leading up to this 16th century, there is uh, this issue of fear, fear of Jesus, of needing other patrons, other mediators. Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary, the mother of God, is introduced not only to make a theological point of the virgin birth, but is introduced as a a co-redeemer, as someone who certainly will hear us poor, humble sinners. I mean, and, and when she hears us, because she's a mother, she has this, this warmth and this softness to her bearing. When she hears us, 
She will go to her son and will, will surely listen to his mother, right? What better mediator could you ask for than Mary? And yet our confession says that this is unbelief. This is folly that has distracted us to Mary and other human intercessors. And so briefly, I want to look at this outline of this kind of large article here. Jesus is a perfect mediator, first, according to his divine and human nature. And also, the record that we have of his mediation in Scripture is one of his love and one of his tenderness. Second, I want to look briefly at the issue of saints, even though it may not be a great uh, uh, um, temptation for many of us here today, but perhaps for some listening on audio, it might be. But Jesus is a perfect high priest, finally, because of his suffering, because he has been tempted without sin. So let's first look where we begin with Jesus as a perfect mediator. The article starts with a striking claim. We believe that we have no access to God except. And we might just sort of blur right past that. But that's a radical claim. And I submit that one reason we don't think about Jesus as our mediator is because we don't really believe this claim that much anymore in the world and in the church today. One reason is that we don't really think we need a mediator. Of course we have access to God. I was told that God loves me and has a wonderful plan for my life. What do I need a mediator for? The Bible's God's love letter for me. He's not angry. He wants me to have my best life now. The marketplace, the world that we live that, that puts the individual on the throne because we can all go to Amazon and buy whatever we want and get it delivered later today, right? The marketplace says the customer's always king. You know, and if any customer service department is good, it's surely the heavenly one. And in the 19th century, the history of the American church, which focused on my feelings, on my immediate experience of God, is, is all about an experience. That's not mediated by a go-between, by a third party. It's immediate. The exact opposite. That's what romanticism tells us. Don't look outside to a mediator. Look inside to your heart. And so, we live in a radically different world than the world which produced this article of Christian faith. But the medieval church was the exact opposite. You are a miserable sinner. That was one of the drumbeats. God hates you and has a horrible plan for your life. If you think you're having your worst life now, just wait until Jesus comes back in judgment. It will get worse. You should be afraid. You know, in the Sistine Chapel, if I was preaching in the Sistine Chapel today, there would be this terrifying picture behind me of people shrieking and screaming and running away as Jesus comes back in judgment. Your only hope lies in a holy priesthood, a church, and in the, the theological league of justice, a band of superpower saints who were so holy, you realize that when the medieval church spoke of a saint, when they canonized a saint, what they were saying is, is that saint's name has entered the list, entered the canon of those who we know are in heaven because they're so holy. They're now working miracles here on earth, kind of strange, through prayers to them. They have so much righteousness, we should ask saints to pray for us because they're right up there next to God. We'll come back to that later. But there was so much emphasis on the whole pattern of the Christian life. The church's calendar was full of saints' days. We had patriots who interceded for us. It shaped the worship. It shaped the pilgrimage. And of course, the Virgin Mary was everywhere as a kinder, a gentler redeemer, mediator. 
In broader medieval culture, it wasn't the culture of the marketplace. It was the culture of, of slavery and bondage and serfdom, of feuds and vassals. And, and you needed a patron. You needed someone in a position of power and authority to get in and to gain you advantage if you wanted any hope to be delivered from a, a, a crisis. So our confession against that backdrop says... Jesus is the perfect mediator we need because he unites together the divine and human natures. So this is apropos of of Christmas and the incarnation. We would have no access to God apart from the birth of Christ, apart from Jesus as the God-man. This is the heart of the good news of the gospel. We'll be talking about this tonight in our lessons in Carol's service. God in the manger. God taking on our human flesh and weakness. Jesus becoming sin so that we might become righteousness. And it's why the understanding of the two natures of Christ, the incarnation, is so important. It's a crucial part of the teaching of the epistle to the Hebrews. To get his mediation, his priesthood right, you have to understand a pretty, absolutely mysterious, but pretty complicated theological topic without making a mistake. Notice what the confession says next. This mediator whom the Father has appointed between himself and us, ought not terrify us by his greatness, so that we have to look for another one according to our fancy. See, the medieval church failed to strike this balance between the humanity and deity of Christ. They emphasized how he is unlike us, how he is powerful and great and mighty. There was truth to that, of course, but he is also man. They invented other intercessors, as we've talked already about. The catechism, or rather our confession, responds that Christ is the only one. If we don't trust in Christ alone, we really aren't trusting in him at all. We really haven't grasped uh, the lesson that we, we mentioned this morning, even in that call uh, to, uh, to worship from Hebrews chapter 12, right? That Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant and to blood that speaks uh, better than the word of Abel. And it looks first to Christ's love for us. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is a man and he loves us as his brothers and sisters. He makes us his children as as the prologue to John's gospel says. We are born uh, of God. We become children of God, not by the will of man or by the flesh of man, but by Belief in Christ. He knows the sorrows of sin and death. And he pursues the cross. He pursues our redemption to deliver his brothers and sisters from those sorrows which he himself experienced. Romans 8 speaks of of the whole creation groaning, right? And longing for the resurrection. But it closes with, with this encouragement. If God is for us, who can be against us? He didn't spare his own son. So God the Father himself gave so much for us. We shouldn't be afraid of the Father, first of all. But then Paul continues, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. You see, that's his mediation. He's in the position and place of power. Who indeed is interceding for us, Paul writes. He's praying for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Christ doesn't just say he loves us, but he has shown that he loves us. And then Paul continues, tribulation or distress, 
Shall any of this separate us? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ our Lord. That's good news. And if we think we need someone to talk to Christ on our behalf, we fundamentally fail to grasp the value of his work and his incarnation. The good news is that even on that day of judgment, when Christ comes as judge, if there's any time to be terrified, and I, and I got to admit to you, I grew up being kind of terrified. I grew up in a, in a dispensationalist home, and I thought of the rapture, and what if I get left behind? I thought of that idea of the book of life, and all my sins being laid out. I thought, well, how's that good? How does that work? How's that good news? And our catechism, Heidelberg Catechism, question 52, says, how does Christ's return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? Something that would have been really foreign and strange to me as a kid. The catechism tells us, in all distress and persecution. So first of all, uh, the person writing the catechism says, well, things are pretty bad now. We're being persecuted. That's a good starting point. With uplifted head, with pride, with confidence, I confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place and removed the whole curse from me. The one who is coming to judge me was judged for me. So as Jesus reads from the book of life and, yes, perhaps recounts all of our sins, they will be known to us and publicly as sins that he has died for, as sins that don't condemn us anymore. And the only thing that will be uh, experienced in that moment is the joy and glory of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. The confession... uh, Belgic 26 refers to Philippians here, uh, which speaks of the incarnation, whereby the Son, being in the form of God, emptied himself and took the form of man, becoming a servant that was obedient to death out of love for us. And there's also much reference, as I said earlier, to the epistle to the Hebrews, where we read that Jesus was made completely like his brothers. Um, We read already from chapter 4, but... If you still have your pew Bible there, it's worth turning uh, to earlier in Hebrews, uh, to chapter 2, perhaps. Um, He speaks uh, of of the deity of Christ. And after establishing uh, that he is God, Hebrews speaks of his humanity. Chapter 2, for it was fitting that he for for whom and by whom all things exist, for he who is God in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have one source. That is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. I will tell your name in the midst of my brothers. Behold, I and the children God has given me. These words are put on the tongue of Christ, our Savior. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. Jesus bore our flesh. That, why? Why was he born a virgin uh, on Christmas Day? That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Hebrews is telling us that Jesus delivered us from the fear of death. He died so that we need not fear death. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect. How can we fear our brother? It's like we're sitting in 
in the pokey, the jail overnight because we got caught driving under the influence or committed some other crime. And when our brother shows up to bail us out, you know, we're not afraid. We're quite happy when family comes to our rescue. I'm not speaking from personal experience or anything here. Just, But this, this sharing in our flesh is the foundation of the claim. We have a great high priest. We have one tempted as we are. Suffering as we are, even to the point of death, as Hebrews, or rather, again, back to Philippians, obedient to the point of death. That's the whole purpose. The throne of grace. This is that mercy seat which was in the tabernacle. And in the Old Testament, it was represented by the ark and the shedding of blood and the priests that ministered there. And Hebrews is telling us now that Jesus has shed blood once and for all. That his sacrifice brings an end to all sacrifice. And the medieval church had, had reiterated and perpetuated the theme of ongoing sacrifice. They had an altar in front. The Eucharist, the Lord's Supper, was called a sacrifice for sin. An ongoing propitiatory sacrifice. Brothers and sisters, we don't need ongoing sacrifices. We have the perfect meteor who's made the perfect sacrifice. And so this is dishonoring to the saints to ask them to seek their intercession. Again, I imagine uh, moving on just briefly to this second point, because it is treated in, in our confession here, that it's probably not a great temptation for many of us in this room uh, to pray to saints. But the argument we often hear from our Roman Catholic or Orthodox friends goes something like this. We aren't worshiping saints when we erect their statues or their memorials or, or the Virgin Mary or, or name chapels after them. We aren't worshiping them. We're just asking them to pray for us. Like, you know, we ask each other today uh, to pray for us. There's nothing wrong with that. Why is there anything wrong? Indeed, wouldn't it be even better to pray to someone who's already in heaven, just that much closer to God? And our confession says, first of all, it's, it's, it's a lack of faith to think you need another mediator. Christ alone, he is a perfect mediator. Hebrews 7, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. He does it all. He doesn't need any help. Second, great saints and the faith demonstrated through a life of holiness by their faith. They trusted in Jesus alone. They didn't encourage their followers to pray to them after they died. It dishonors their legacy. And third, the catechism makes this great point. We don't need a mediator... We shouldn't plead that we are unworthy to come to Christ ourselves. The whole point is that we are righteous by faith. We come through His merits. So you see how the teaching about Christ that, that began with His atonement, His atoning death, and the righteousness of faith, and justification by faith alone, and sanctification as a fruit of that justification, all of this builds on justification. The doctrine of justification is what gives us confidence in this mediator. So when we seek other mediators, we don't recognize or acknowledge or understand that we are justified, have been justified by faith, and have, therefore, boldness to enter into that throne room of grace through Christ by faith. Now, we can make a few other more polemical points about the saints from a, a Protestant perspective, or I should say a Reformed perspective. First of all, they are no longer living or dead. There's a big difference between me asking Elder Chris Robbins to pray for me and me asking someone who's not in the room, no longer bodily alive. The scriptures are clear that we are not 
commanded to communicate with the dead. In fact, we are commanded to not command to communicate with the dead. The only dead person we are commanded to communicate with is the one who has died and risen again. And that is because he lives. The saints' bodies are still in the earth. Scripture doesn't tell us that they can hear what we say. They are creatures. It is Christ's deity that makes him a perfect mediator because he does know the number of hairs on your head. He does know your heart. He hears your prayers. It's ironic, isn't it, that the test to become a canonized saint in the church includes demonstrating and proving that that saint has heard the intercession of people here on earth and has contributed to the working of a miracle. Well, that means that before the church says that this saint can work a miracle, you have to pray to a saint hoping that they'll work a miracle for you. You don't hope that Jesus hears your prayers. You know it. And so it is a practice based on unbelief. In conclusion, I just love this last paragraph. I think it's beautiful. What more do we need? For Christ himself declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And we might add, by me alone. That's the force there. Why should we seek another intercessor? It has pleased God to give us his Son. Let us not leave him for another. Or rather, seek without ever finding. For when God gave him to us, he knew well that we were sinners. He didn't give Jesus as a mediator to Sinless people, he came to us. Therefore, in following the command of Christ, we call on the Heavenly Father through Christ, our only mediator, as we are taught by the Lord's Prayer. Of course, the Catechism will teach us more about the Lord's Prayer. But what an important point. Jesus taught us how to pray. He said, you pray to God yourself, our Father, because I am His Son and your older brother. I have made you children of God. Not by the will of man or the will of the flesh, but by God, our Father, who art in heaven. Teach us to pray and transform our worship that we might trust in Christ alone. Let's pray. Merciful God, we know that our hearts are weak and full of doubts. We know our shame. We know that on our own merits, we don't deserve to stand before you. We, we have no legal standing, no basis to come into this court, this room of grace. But Christ has given us access. A man, a God, at the same time, powerful, eternal, indestructible, infinite, but also loving and humble and weak, our flesh and blood. Comfort us with this great gospel truth, especially at this Christmas season. In Jesus' name, we pray all these things. Amen.